Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Hey, this is Wayne. Just wanted to touch base with you and let you know, um, <clears throat> because I wasn't able to get Bible study ready to be recorded for Thursday evening, our regular Bible study in John, I wanted to post this up here. This was the Bible study we did last night at our church. This Bible study I taught, uh, it's on Psalm 2 and 3, so I thought I'd put it up there for you, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Test, test, there we go. Hear the words of life. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's John 8, 31 and 32. Good evening. Glad you're all here to join me. Um, we're going to be working through Psalm 2 and probably at least part of, if not all, of Psalm 3 this evening. So uh, let's go ahead and let's just get on in. Let's open up with our... Um, our opening prayer is from Valley of Vision, as we, we tend to use, and this one is called God's Cause. Let's pray. Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engages my heart, and I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God, and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. O oh, that all men might love and praise thee, that thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt. But, O, oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. O, oh, do thou bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer thou my request. Amen. All right, well, like I said, we're, we're going to start in Psalm 2, and depending on time, we are going to try to get into Psalm 3 this evening and maybe even get through it. Um, what Matthew Henry says of this second psalm is he speaks of it in this way. He says, as the foregoing psalm, referring to Psalm 1, which we spoke of a month ago, as the foregoing psalm was moral and showed us our duty, so this is evangel evangelical and shows us our Savior. And that's what we're going to see this evening. Um, like we talked about, the uh, Psalm 1 showed us how we should not act and how we should act. Showed how, how those who are uh, 
well, no, it doesn't actually say it. Um, talks about those who delight in the law of Yahweh, and in his law they meditate day and night, but also then speaks, speaks of the wicked, speaks of the unbeliever, speaks of the one who does not turn to God. So, like, like Matthew Henry said, that was the moral. But this one speaks of the Savior. Now, that sounds kind of interesting, considering this seems to actually refer to two different people. So we're going to talk about that for a minute. So what we need to realize in this psalm is that while David is speaking of the establishment of his kingdom, this is acting as a type of foreshadowing or pointing to the establishment of our Savior's kingdom. This is what is called, and again, I'm going to teach you a big word here. This is what's called typology. So David, if you did not know, David in the Old Testament was a type of Jesus Christ. He was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And actually there are a few across the Old Testament. Um, Melchizedek himself, who Abraham interacted with, was a type of Savior, a type of Jesus Christ. So we actually can see both in this, thus why, why Henry speaks of this being evangelical. It points us at the Savior. And please understand, a good, a good part of these Psalms do exactly that. They point to the Savior. So many people that want to, and there, there are people out there now who call themselves theologians that want to, let's see, the word they use is decouple the Old Testament from the New Testament. They want to decouple the Old Testament, put it over here and leave it alone and only focus on the New Testament. The problem is the Old Testament is what the New Testament sits on. And we can we see clearly here that which points, particularly in this one, in this psalm, that points at Christ himself specifically. So let me go ahead and I'll read to you from it. We'll read the 12 verses of Psalm 2, and then we'll start digging into it. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them, and he speaks to them in his anger, and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel." So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So basically what we're going to see in this psalm so we've got in this psalm, and again, we got to remember it's poetry, but it's also, we've even talked about it, it's the Old Testament songbook. And what we see here in our three verses, thus why when they went to go to break these down into chapter and verse, they broke this down. You see this is 12 verses. This is four stanzas of three. So, and interestingly enough, each three verses represent a point here. So we're going to see the nations raging against 
this king. We see the Lord in heaven deriding them. We're going to see the son proclaiming the decree. It's the decree of Yahweh. And then an advice being given to the kings to yield obedience to the Lord's anointed. So the nation's raging. Verses 1 through 3 here. And so I'm going to read it again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So this isn't just referring to the rulers. We, we need to see that. This is talking about the people and the rulers both. Um, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? This is talking about the people themselves, the average people, not just rulers who are against this king. And we see that throughout, throughout the history of both David, and we see that with Jesus as well. I mean, with David, um, we see his own brother giving him a hard time as he comes to bring treats for them when they're taking on the Philistines. And he's just asking questions, and his brother wants to get bent out of shape with him. Um, we see him when he's fleeing from Saul, who's trying to kill him, and Doeg the Edomite sees him um, with the priests, and he's got to go run to Saul and tattletale. Yeah, I saw him. He's over here, which called, caused the slaughter of all but one of the priests. Um, we see the Ziphites do the same thing while David is on the run from Saul. We see the average people stand up, stand up against David. We actually see it even after he's king. Um, we can't forget um, about Absalom and his uprising. I mean, the fact is, when you read the histories, it's very, very clear that the majority of the people followed Absalom, not David. When David ran from Jerusalem, the majority followed Absalom. And we also see the same thing with Christ. I mean, that's the thing. It's really easy to go through and read the Gospels and, and read as Jesus establishes his ministry and sets up for the preparation for the kingdom. But at the same time, we really need to understand what's going on there. Um, after the feeding of the 5,000, we see them try, in, in the book of John, we see them try to make him king. So you'd think, oh, that's great. They support him. No, they didn't. They wanted a free meal, you know, and, and that sounds kind of silly to you and me, except you got to realize that as Jay has talked about from the pulpit here, these were subsistence level living people. So a free meal was a huge, huge financial bonus to them. So they wanted to put a free meal in charge. They wanted to make a free meal king. It, it wasn't about really supporting him. We see the same people that, that, that announce, um, the triumphal um, entry and proclaim him king as he comes into Jerusalem for that final um, Passover. Within four or five days, they're, they're crying out in mass, crucify him. Get, give, give us this murderer, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, crucify him. So they, they were not supportive of Jesus. And we see the same thing today. I mean, we saw it throughout there. I mean, even, even as, in, and I know Jay has spoken of it from here, um, you know, uh, Christians trying to establish the kingdom turned into torches, rolled in tar, 
hung up on a wall or hung up on a post on a street and turned into street lamps as they were lit up and burned. You know, that kind of thing. It, they resist. Um, outside of the grace of God, mankind resists this. So it, there is the constant. So, the, so while this speaks of David, this also speaks of the setting up of the kingdom of Christ, that, that the nations, that the peoples meditate on vain things. Now, please remember what vain means there. Vain means foolish, means, means um, what, what's the phrase I want to use? Um, means unproductive. They meditate on unproductive things, things that will not be beneficial to them, them or anybody else. Okay, so that's what it's speaking of there. But it goes on in verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, when you read the when you read the histories, when you're talking about David, I, I don't see him. And I, I obviously I'm I'm not some great biblical scholar, but I I don't see him putting great burdens on his people. The fact is, half the time he's putting the burden on himself and putting himself in harm's way to provide for them. Um. And particularly with Christ, when we look at it as Christ, when we're looking at this as speaking of Christ, which it also does, he's very, very clear about that, that his burden is light. So these burdens are burdens they've put on themselves, trying to tear, tear apart the cords and, and um, tear, tear the fetters apart and cast away the cords from us. They're just not interested in being associated with Christ. They've got absolutely no desire, and that's what we're speaking of here, the leaders. But again, we, we saw that with David throughout his history. Um, it was known that David had been anointed, that he was going to replace Saul. Yet the minute Saul is dead, Abner runs off and makes somebody else king. We watch, like, like I already brought up, we watch David's own sons. We watch Absalom try to overthrow him. Um, we watch Adonijah, even though David has made clear Solomon is going to replace him. We, we watch Adonijah running around acting like he's king, while his father is still alive, no less. Acting like he's king. So, well, so we see the rulers rebelling against it. We see that in our day, though, rebelling against Christ as well. So, so this very much applies to you and I today. Um, fact is, they want to support abortion. They want to s support the slaughter of babies. What are we? We're over 60 million now? Over 60 million in this country? That's not genocide. I don't know what is. And the government supports it. The rulers support it. And the sad fact is, many, many churches out there, you know, this is, this is talking about rulers kings of the earth and rulers, and in this case it could be speaking of religious rulers as well, are supportive of it. They won't call it out. They won't stand against it. So this is what is being spoken of here, and this, this is this the beginning part where you're seeing the nations raging against the establishment of this kingdom. But in verses 4 through 6, like I said, we see the Lord in heaven deriding them. 
making fun of them. If, if you don't know what deriding means, he makes fun of them. He makes fun of them. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So he laughs at him and says, Hey, I'm going to install my king no matter what you do. And we see that as well in the histories. We see that as well. I mean, David is speaking of what has happened with him. Um, the fact is, with all the things piled in David's way to become king, God made him king anyways. With Absalom trying to take over, and I don't mean to be morbid, but Absalom comes out against, comes out against David with many, many more men, and David's troops tromp them, and Absalom runs up under a tree and gets his head stuck in a tree branch. I'm sorry. Not, not, not to be morbid and not that he laughs at injury, but it's, you were trying. I mean, Absalom's very clear. Absalom's not interested. Don't, don't ever think Absalom was interested in being anointed by God to be king. He just wanted to power. God made it clear that wasn't going to be his power. Because don't think, as tough as David's troops were, the little bit that went with him, don't think David and his troops won that battle. God won that battle for them. Don't ever think otherwise. But that's not the first time it happened. I mean, you know, like I, I brought up Adonijah, who was trying to establish himself as, as the replacement while his father was still alive. And while Solomon was already designated, fortunately, folks were paying attention, made David aware, and they sat Solomon as king while Adonijah's off celebrating and all of a sudden, everybody bails on Adonijah, and Adonijah's got to come back and beg for his life. God laughing again. I, you can even go back even beyond David. I'm sorry, the idea of, you know, God leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army charges in after them with all their war equipment and their chariots and everything else. And the water just goes splish. And Egypt no longer has an army. I, that right there, God who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Well, I can't help but think, so, so we've talked about David, so let's talk about Christ. One lowly carpenter, admittedly the Son of God, holy God and holy man, truly God and truly man, but a lowly carpenter, comes out of Galilee, which was not... Galilee was the sticks of Israel. It, it was the backwoods of Israel. And Nazareth was the armpit. So don't, ever, so don't ever misunderstand that. But this lowly carpenter comes out of there, picks up 12 ordinary men, and changes the world, changes the world. 
that before Paul, the last of that, well, actually before John, the last of them to actually pass, as far as we know, was the last of them we know of being alive. Um, they've spread the they've spread the gospel to the edges of the known world. Twelve ordinary men, and in that twelve, I'm actually including Saul, Paul, um, since Judas is obviously not there anymore at that point. But those twelve ordinary men, I mean, six fishermen, a tent maker, a tax collector, a zealot. These are not the guys you would pick to go do this. These are not the guys that would have the training that you would think you would be chosen by God to go do this. And of course, that's in all probability, that's what left the religious elite so befuddled because they didn't understand how these guys were having these effects, how these guys were saying, you got to think about it, John and Peter, when they're beaten and told to preach no more, and they said, well, we'll leave it up to you, but we've got to follow God. And they go right back out to preaching. What gives these fishermen the strength of character, the, 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 the true verve, the true, true strength of soul to continue in the face of that? That's God laughing. That, that's him laughing at them and mocking them, stating clearly that I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, of course, Zion could be inferred to be the church. But he's installed his king, his spiritual king, on there. And he, and he laughs at the idea of them stopping him. I mean, the persecutions were huge. Please don't make, make any mistakes through the first and second century. The actual physical per- persecutions, the murders, um, the, the, the slaughterings, the, the throwing them to animals, the, the using them for target practice in the forum in Rome. I mean, you name it that was done, yet it spread to the entire world. It didn't stop. That's him laughing. So please, please don't think this, this is just a cute phrase. That's him laughing and making very, very clear to them that no matter what you do, no matter how powerful you think you are, no matter what you think you've put in place, I will succeed. I will succeed and put my king on the throne. He did it with David, and he maintained him there, and he did it with Christ. So then we see the Son proclaiming the decree. And again, this is the decree of God, verses 7 through 9. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Now, obviously, this is very clearly messianic. I mean, this very, you can't help but read it the first time and think of Jesus saying this. I mean, you are my son today, I have begotten you. I mean, you almost pick that straight out of the Gospel of John. You know, it almost hits you in the face there. Um, but the rest of it, I mean, you, you find all over the place in the New Testament very clearly, um, giving the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Um, we see Jesus make that statement that God is going to do that for him throughout the New Testament. Um, that you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Um, that, that's, 
in the Old and New Testament, um, Isaiah 11, 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Again, he, the rod of his mouth. He's talking with the, the word of God. But that's the rod. Uh, Revelation 2. Well, actually, I'll go Isaiah. Isaiah 30, verse 14. Whose breaking is like the breaking of a potter's jar. So ruthlessly shattered, ruthlessly shattered that a potsherd will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. The indication there and, and what I take from here, um, you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. This isn't just I'm going to break it into three or four big pieces. This is I'm going to shatter it so small. When it, when it talks there, there in there, Isaiah 30 verse 14, um, that a potsherd will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth, meaning not even a piece big enough to scoop a coal out of the fire. A little coal out of the fire, not even a piece that big. It is going to be shattered beyond repair. The iron rod, that's a rod of punishment. It is a rod of punishment and a rod of breaking. Uh, Revelation 2, 27 and 28. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Uh, Revelation 12, 5. Um, this is speaking of the woman fleeing the dragon. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So this isn't... This isn't, I mean, obviously it occurred in Psalm before it occurred, at least in Revelation. But again, th this is very clear indication of rule. Um, in some cases, the scepter itself, that, uh, that symbol of authority. In a lot of cases, it'd be made with wood. But there were times they were made of iron. Particularly if you're talking about in a situation where the king was having to do an awful lot of punishment, having to deal with an awful lot of rebellion and disaffection. So again, that's what he's speaking of here is he's going to place all of them under his feet. Um, we, we see that repeat. We see that throughout the old Testament that all the nations would be given and the ends of the earth would be his possession. Um, obviously that's why this looks more messianic because David never had anything beyond Israel itself. But Jesus has the world. He has the world and all that's within it. God has made him ruler. The fact is God created it through him. So this is a clear indication here of that and of the establishment of his authority. And that's the thing, the rod of iron. Like I said, it's making clear here in these statements, and this is this is very clear that it is the Messiah stating from God, not only that he's made him the king, but he's given him that authority. He's given him the authority of God over the entirety of the world, making very, very clear, you know, he's, we've seen them rage. We've seen God laugh at them and tell them, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And here's your king. And he now has my authority, my total authority to punish as is necessary to break and destroy as is necessary, that which cannot be cleansed, which cannot be saved. 
So making very clear the authority that is established there. But then advice is given. Verses 10 through 12. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it's a give us a clear, clear warning here to these same rulers, these ones that are raising up, that are that are rising up, that are raging, the people that are raging. The warning is clear here. So now, O kings, show insight, show wisdom, show real wisdom, and hear what I'm saying here. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Again, that fear is an awe. Serve him with reverence. Serve him with reverence. Yes, a fear for his wrath, but a reverence for his holiness. And rejoice with trembling. Rejoice in the fact that you're serving God. And rejoice with a trembling, that, that trembling of excitement, of, of, of joy that you're doing the right thing. You're serving God. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And then it gives, gives some pointers, gives some guidance here. Kiss the sun. And I, it, you, you read through this and you go, kiss the sun. Okay, what, what are you talking about here? Well, kissing the king, giving the king a kiss was a way of showing obeisance, a way of showing honor, a way of showing reverence for so that's what it's saying to him there to them there. Be reverent. Show him that reverence. Show him that honor, that respect, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Making very, very clear that if that reverence is not shown, again, it's still a warning. If that reverence is not shown, his wrath will come. For his wrath, and of course it sta- states that in the next in the next statement. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we see that clearly. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Making very, very clear that if you serve Yahweh with fear and you rejoice with trembling and you kiss the sun, you show him that reverence, that awe, that true respect, that you will be blessed. You will be taking refuge in him and you will be blessed. But if not, you will face wrath. States it very, very clearly. And Matthew Henry again, and and speaking of this as it wraps up, this psalm as the former, as Psalm 1, is very fitly prefixed to the book of devotions because as it is necessary to our acceptance with God that we should be subject to the precepts of his law, as laid out by Psalm 1. So it is likewise that we should be subject to the grace of his gospel and come to him in the name of the mediator. Again, that's making very, very clear that if we're going to come to God, I mean, that's particularly those last three verses, if we're coming to God, we're coming through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. There is no other way. Um, John 14 states it very clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. That's what's exactly being state, stated here. That's gospel statement. You got to come through Christ. That is the only way to God. Thus, thus what 
Henry says there. So it is likewise that we should be subject to the grace of his gospel and come to him in the name of a mediator. So that is Psalm 2. Now the reason I wanted to go on and look at Psalm 3 is because it, it seems to fit very well following on behind it. Because we've talked about the kings raging, the people raging against and trying to resist the establishment of the king. Well, in the manuscript of Psalm 3 at the beginning, it states clearly that it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Which, of course, I brought up to you as we were discussing Psalm 2. So, and yes, I keep going back to Matthew Henry, and it's just because he says stuff so well. But as he speaks of Psalm 3 here, stating, As the foregoing psalm in the type of David in preferment showed us the royal dignity of the Redeemer, so this, by the example of David in distress, shows us the peace and holy security of the redeemed, how safe they really are and think themselves to be under the divine protection. Now, let's discuss some history real quick. So, this is a psalm that occurs in the context of 2 Samuel 15, which is obviously when Absalom turns against David. So, to refresh our memories, Absalom was David's oldest. He was a peach of a guy. Obviously, I'm being facetious. Um, and as sad as it is, and as much as God proclaims David as being a man after his own heart, Absalom is who he is because David is not a very good father. Um, because Amnon, one of the brothers of Absalom, um, had inappropriate relations with Absalom's sister. We, we have to remember, obviously, David had multiple wives, thus sons and daughters from all of them. So Amnon was from another of David's wives, but he uh, inappropriately took advantage of Absalom's sister. And David did nothing about it, didn't respond to it at all, even though it was clearly against God's law. So Absalom bided his time, invited all the sons to go to, to come to dinner at his place, and then murdered Amnon, and then ran. Well, he's gone for three years. David's unhappy. David finally gets talked into bringing him home. So he brings him home, sticks him off in a corner. Won't have anything to do with them. Finally, Joab gets bullied by Absalom to go and talk to the king to bring Absalom before the king because Absalom's like, okay, why did I come back? If you're gonna, if you're gonna bring me back to Jerusalem, why are you sticking me in a corner? Either bring me back here or I'll go back to where I was. So he brings him back in there. Well, the sad fact is, he then along the way proceeds to sit in the city gates, the common place for the meeting and stuff like that, and actually disparage his father. He 
he speaks poorly of the king and how things are being happened. People would be coming in to come see David and deal with issues they had and Absalom would intercept them and would talk to them about it. Well, you know, if I was in power, I, you know, I would do this and this and this and tried to pump himself up in their eyes. And more and more people were seeing because, because Absalom kept making David look like he was ineffectual, like he wasn't doing the job anymore. Well, the fact is David wasn't hearing from any of these people because they weren't going all the way to David. Absalom was intercepting them. And it eventually gets to the point where Absalom assembles certain people, and in some cases, a few of them were counselors of David himself, and proceeds to march on Jerusalem. At this point, a very large part of the population of Israel has gone over to Absalom's side. It makes no tactical sense for David to stand his ground from a human perspective. So David flees. He flees across the river Kidron um, over the Mount of Olives and flees away from Absalom. Absalom comes in. Absalom does some pretty untasteful th distasteful things to establish himself as being in in um, contradiction to his father against his father and so this is this this psalm comes from that period while david is run now as as david leaves you have people from the family of saul particularly shmi who proceeds to sit there and and run along the side of a hill yelling curses down at david and all the people with him because he's like good this david guy who replaced saul is finally going to get his comeuppance not that that was really valid about David replacing Saul. Now, at the same time, we need to re remember, this has followed David's misbehavior, which is a really light way of putting it, with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. So this is following this. And please, please don't ever think Absalom and Adonijah, and Amnon, and all that behavior and stuff that I've described to you happens in a vacuum. As Jay and I have many times spoken from up here, these things didn't happen in a vacuum, and they're not recorded in a vacuum. There's purpose there. God was pretty clear to David that with what he did to Uriah, and if, if you don't had Uriah, who was one of his mighty men, which had great meaning there and actually meant Uriah was pretty close to David. He shoved him out on the front lines and had him, had him killed so that he could have his wife who, who he'd already slept with. So God was pretty clear. Problems are going to come on you even from within your own family. Well, Absalom, Amnon, Adonijah, it just keeps on, the hits keep coming. Um, if you don't if you don't know reading through the histories Joab the commander of his armies is his nephew Joab prince among men not he's a murderer he, he and his brother both the, the two that survive are murderers i mean they're, they're atrocious i'm not talking murdering in the course of doing battle i'm talking murderers as in calling somebody to have a talk and shoving a sword in their gut kind of stuff. Um, 
His other nephew, Amasa, who was supposed to command the armies of Judah, can't seem to get the job, job done. They're supposed to go and assemble and, and go, go to war, and Amasa can't even bother to be on time. But of course, then he also gets murdered by Joab. So one nephew murders his cousin, the other nephew. So this is the family that David has. Now, I'm not blaming David for the upbringing of everybody else external, but this is not new. This is, this is not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising to David. So what I want to warn you against as we take into this, so we've got eight verses here, and we're going to have four topics in these verses because these basically come in two-verse couplets here. Um, this is David praying, so let's understand that. Please don't think this is David praying. We're going to see him, and he's going to, and he's going to show such gratitude to God for what God has done for him. Please don't think he's doing that without, without a memory or an awareness of how badly he sinned. This is taking place after Psalm 51. And if you've never read Psalm 51, you want to go and do that. Because that is David lamenting what he did with Uriah and Bathsheba. So, he has been repentant. He has bemoaned and mourned his sin and mortified it. But this is after that, and he's still on the run. So let's read Psalm 3. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. So again, as I said, this is taking place in the context of 2 Samuel 15. But we see, like I said, we've got two verse couplets here. So verses 1 and 2 are David making a complaint to God concerning his enemies. I mean, it's kind of clear there, making a complaint to God concerning the enemies he's facing. And they are many, like I said. It is, it is truly the majority of the population of Israel that he is running from. But then, then we'll see in verses 3 and 4, David declaring his confidence in the Lord. We're going to then see David singing of his safety in sleep, verses 5 and 6. And David strengthens himself for future conflict and again reminding himself of what Yahweh has done for him in verses 7 and 8. So verses 1 and 2. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Again, they were, they were oh, I left off Selah because I didn't see it out there at the end. Sorry, Selah, it's the way it's laid out in this book. It's stuck off in the right margin. Um. Oh, and if you didn't know, by the way, Selah actually means pause. That's what it's intending, is a pause there as you say it. 
But that's the thing. So like I was saying, historically, the people have, uh, they've massed against him. You got to realize he, he's been a leader of an army of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who bore the sword. He's running out of Jerusalem with a couple hundred at best. His enemies have multiplied. Not that he hasn't always been fighting around him, but the fact is he's always been winning. At this point, it doesn't look good. He's having to run from his own capital city. He, he doesn't even have enough support, and Jerusalem is walled. Don't think he doesn't have a walled city there. Walled city, and he's running from it. That, that in and of itself, and, and if you don't know, and unfortunately, I'm enough of a nerd that I do know, if you can defend it, you don't leave a walled defense because you can take on tens of your numbers, in some cases hundreds of your numbers, because the walls multiply your ability to defend. So if David is fleeing Jerusalem, it, it means he doesn't have enough people to defend even a portion of the city. And if, if you've never been there, even in the old city, there are different narrower walled, smaller walled portions. David doesn't even have enough people to defend those. So many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Again, what he's speaking of is it's, it's even at a point. I mean, one of the people that goes over to Absalom is, is one of his chief counselors, and I can't remember the guy's name. I should have written it down. I can't remember the guy's name, but one of his chief counselors, supposed to be his friend, has gone over. Um, there are any number of them that have gone over that he thought he could trust. Now, fortunately, the commander of his army is with him, except he has no army to, for the guy to command. Um, he's got the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and that's really about it. And, and the immediate party, he even, he even leaves behind his 20 concubines there to take care of the house. So he's running, he's running scared, to be truthful. He's running scared. But these people are even at a point that they're disparaging him as, you've got no salvation. There's no sal God is not going to save you. You're, they, they're being very clear. You're toast. You're done. You are finished. You know, you're dead. You just don't know it yet. That's what they're saying to David. But then we, we see David, as terrifying as that is, as it would be to any of us, we see David's confidence. Now, this isn't the first time David has ever shown confidence. you got to think about when he took on Goliath. He walked out there. He, he shed all the armor they tried to put on him and the big sword and everything else, grabbed up his staff, a couple of stones, and his sling, and he walked out there to take him on in the confidence of God. So verses 3 and 4 shouldn't surprise us. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. So the first part of it, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. Again, he's making clear that God has protected him. He truly has. you got to think about how many times that Saul has tried to throw a spear through him while he's playing music to calm Saul's heart, to calm that, 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 that blackness that would come over Saul, and he would go into his fits. 
And the fact is, the room isn't that big, and Saul's a very, very large man throwing a spear. The, the, the divine intervention that has to take place to give you the chance to dodge out of the, out of the, the line of that spear and not get pinned to the wall is pretty impressive. So he's very, very clear that God has protected him. God even protected him with Saul's own son, Jonathan, who warned him of the fact that Saul was going to come after him. Um, Saul has repeatedly, um, or David has repeatedly been protected. I, what was, there was twice that while Saul was hunting him, that David had a chance to assassinate Saul with nobody having any chance to stop him. And he didn't. So you got to think of God protecting him that way, that God was able to allow, allow David, as Saul had people everywhere, and as we saw, you had people everywhere turning David in. David would show up somewhere with his men. Boy, you better believe the minute that they, minute, minute they showed their face, somebody was running to Saul at, at, at Gabeah, running to Saul to, to tattletale. Yeah, we saw David. We saw David. But he survived it all. And yes, it would be really easy for us to go, oh, he was very talented at avoiding it. No, God was his shield. That's how God acted as his shield. But he goes on here, my glory and the one who lifts my head. So again, he's been glorified by God. God anointed him. God put him there. This was not David. And David's being very clear here. David did not put himself in in the slot of king. David obeyed God, and God put him there. And that's the statement he's making there. Because when he goes off, goes up, he, oh, Yahweh are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Lifts my head, the reference there is lifts his head to be crowned. That's what that is. That is, a, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the word used in one of the other translations. But again, that that's that's what that is. It's not a... He's laying on the ground and you're lifting it up or you're lifting it off his neck and you know beheading him or anything like that. It's, it's the lifting his head for him to be crowned. It's making clear that God crowned me. That's what he's trying. And this is in reference to the fact that the, those in verse 2 saying there's no salvation for him to God. He's making clear, God put me here. And again, that's why this very much associates with Psalm 2, that God made him king, has shielded him, and has glorified him. And he goes on in verse 4, I was calling to Yahweh with my voice. He's praying. He's been praying to God, and he goes on, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Again, he's being very, very clear. Not only did God put me here, but he is still answering my prayers. So he's showing that clear confidence like we saw when he walked out there between the battle lines with a sling and a couple stones in his shepherd's crook against this monster that had basically slaughtered everybody else. So he shows that confidence. Then he sings of his safety and sleep. And I know this sounds weird for this to pop up in the middle of this, but there's a point here. Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. What he's saying there, so considering what he's in the middle of, I'll ask you, if the majority of the population of this country was pursuing you to basically remove your head, would you be able to sleep? 
I wouldn't be. It amazes me that David is, but he makes very clear. And again, he's referring to God here. I lay down and slept. I awoke for Yahweh sustains me. This is not talking sleep of exhaustion. This is a comforted sleep because he knows he's protected. He knows God is sustaining him. He knows God is going to take care of him. And he goes on, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who all around have set themselves against me. Again, it's referencing all those around, but he's saying no matter how many there are, I'm not going to be afraid of them. Because as he said, God is his shield. God has placed him there. God has protected him there. God has taken care of him there. And we'll, we, we can tell through the history. Other than Absalom running, running him out this once. Nobody else ever is able to do that. And the fact is, David never loses a battle. He never loses a battle. So then we see in verses 7 and 8, David strengthening himself for the future con conflict. So he showed how confident he is, and he showed how safe he is. He sung of that being safe, and that he was able to sleep, and sleep a normal sleep. But then he strengthens himself by calling on God. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. Again, calling him, deliver me from Absalom, deliver me from what, what seems to be coming in a temporal way on the earthly plane. Deliver me, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. So again, he's very, very clear. Arise, O Yahweh. Here is what you have done. You know, Save me. Here is what you have done to my enemies to this point. And like I said, there's been more than a few battles where from pure tactics and strategy standpoints, David should have had absolutely zero chance. Actually, many of them. He and the Israelites should have had absolutely no chance. But David constantly won. Now, yeah, he was tactically very, very sound. He was given that by God. He was given that wisdom by God. But God protected him. God, God allowed them to succeed over numbers that were not humanly reasonable. Over numbers that it was obvious God had had, had done with it. Uh, you got to think back to Gideon who was able with, with 300 to wipe out hundreds of thousands. You know, it's that kind of thing. Those have been the kind of battles David has had. And he knows that. He's very, very clear. For you have struck all my enemies in the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. I'm sorry, if you get in close that you're able to shatter the teeth through the helmet and everything else, yeah, you've pretty much dominated the ones you're against. Thus God has done to his enemies. I mean, I mean, as, as sad as it makes David, God hangs Absalom up in a tree by his head for the guys to come along and play pinata with him. And again, I'm not trying to be crude, but I mean, it's like we said, you know, God laughs at those who make plans against God's will. But again, in this case, he protects David. I mean, the, the fact is, David and the few that went with him should have never been able to go head-to-head -head with Absalom and the people he had with him. Should have never had a chance. Because believe me, while, while the commander of the armies was with David, you can't tell me there weren't qualified men with Absalom and with those troops to take on David's group. So David has that sure, sure confidence. But that's an example for you and me. As bad as it gets, 
in our world, I don't see, see you and I having to flee our village with the majority of our nation chasing after us, trying to, trying to slaughter us, to replace us. But David did, and he was still confident in God. He was still confident in his God, that his God was his shield and his protector, so confident that he would sleep. So confident that he could sleep and sleep normally. And he would sing out about it, and he would show absolutely no fear in the face of all those stacked up against him. Now don't get me wrong. The world we're living in, all you got to do is flip on the news. And believe me, Tara and I don't like to do that at all. But all you got to do is flip on the news and you see something else scary out there going on. So it's really easy to be afraid. But the fact is, if you you and I are in Christ, if we are truly God's adopted children... He has struck all our enemies on the cheek. He has shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to him. And as David says, and David's at this point, this very last line of this, isn't even focusing on himself. Your blessings be upon your people. Even David back then was praying for you and me. That God's blessings would be upon his people. So I would say the same thing to you that his blessings would be upon you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time this evening to be able to come together and to partake of your word, to be able to dig in to the songbook of the Old Testament. Lord, we would pray that the eyes and ears of our hearts would have been open, that we would truly take in your word, and that it would shape us, it would grow us in our faith, it would help to mature our walk, so that we would truly, truly walk as imitators of your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.